Welcome to another edition of The Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. On this program, we often talk about programming and code writing using Agile, SAFE, and the Scrum methodologies. And we also talk a lot about governance issues at places like FIFA or the Dow Chemical Company. But this is the first time the two have come together, at least on this program, as we discuss the scandal at Volkswagen, or VW as it's also known, a place where code was written to defeat regulations that led to a huge governance crisis. And Ren, for the benefit of those who who may not have all the background, can you catch us up on on what happened at VW? Sure. Um, Just to be clear, what we know right now is this only impacts their diesel vehicles Mm-hmm. under the Volkswagen brand. So people may or may not know the Volkswagen owns Audi and Porsche as well. Those vehicles right now, we we don't know if they're impacted by this behavior mm-hmm. or this scandal. Um, but what happened is that in Europe, Europe, in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, a few other countries, there are very strict emission standards for automobiles. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States actually is one of the strictest, not the, but we're up there, and especially for diesel vehicles. When it comes to carbon monoxide, diesel is a cleaner burning fuel. However, mm-hmm. under certain conditions, diesel creates something more toxic, yeah. <laughs> way more toxic than you know, regular gas. Okay. Um, and so that's that's one of the reasons why this is, is so impactful. Diesel vehicles have been sold for, I'm trying to think, probably 50, 40, 50 years oh, as yeah. a cleaner burning alternative mm-hmm. to standard petroleum or gas burning vehicles. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding out is that Volkswagen, at least for the last, 15 to 20 years, um, used their, the internal computing systems of the vehicles to fake the emissions test. And I'm, so I'm thunderstruck so that they by would that. Pass. Yeah. Right. And there's a part of me and a part of a lot of people who geeked out at this because just the creativity and the engineering and the ingenuity <laughs> that went into figuring out how to fake these emission tests is really quite extraordinary and fascinating. Mm-hmm. Pretty, some pretty high-end innovation, to be honest with you. And it begs the question, if VW was being that innovative on cheating, mm-hmm. why didn't they apply those same energies to actually making cleaner burning, safer vehicles. Yeah, exactly. exactly um, right. But this has been going on for a long time. We have learned that all the way up at least to the CEO, it was known. There is evidence coming out of Germany, because uh, you know the German government is investigating this, along with the U.S. government, that the family that owns Volkswagen may have known as well. And under German law, they can and do put people in jail 
uh, for hmm. things like this. We can and do in the United States, but it's far rarer, right. more rare. In, in the people who would be in, uh, put in jail all live in Germany. I guess I shouldn't um, say all because I just remember the head of um, the North America lives in the United States. So there's one person uh, at, at least who could be implemented implicated um, and put in jail, and he is facing, he knows he has potential criminal charges both here in the United States and in Germany. Well, I was happily surprised at how quickly the Court of Public Opinion convicted VW. Were you also surprised about that? Absolutely. Um, And I think like you, kind of pleasantly surprised considering the seriousness of this. And it makes you wonder, uh, like everyone is right now, um, what else have they been cheating on or faking? And I think I've mentioned this before in a previous podcast, there's some self-interest, because I own an Audi. Yeah. Volkswagen owns Audi. So I'm kind of like, well, is my car safe? Am I going to pass an emission test? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are asking those questions. And... Kind of the why I think public opinion was so quick is, um, and there are people much better at crisis management than me. If you're really interested in someone, I would suggest uh, Davia Payman. I always screw up her first name the first time I say it for some reason. You know, said it millions of times, but uh, she's a phenomenal crisis manager and and writes a lot about crisis management. And one of the things we know is like VW. Uh, we have an emotional connection to them as Americans of being this environmentally, socially conscious brand. Mm-hmm. So you kind of think of the VW bus and, you know, hippies and the bug. And the whole point of the bug is that you're, you're being, you're, you know, reducing your carbon footprint. And, and, and it's the same thing um, with Audi. You know, Audi pioneered uh, the uh, differentials so that when you're idle, like you're stuck in a traffic jam, the engine powers down and you it runs less and you, you burn less gas. Yeah. Or if you're in a stoplight, it does the same thing, right? You know, so this is something that was so core and fundamental to their brand. And it is an emotional brand, (laughs) right? Yes, absolutely. Porsche is an incredibly emotional brand. Um, And I think that's why the reaction, the public opinion, the court of public opinion, has been so strong and so quick and so decisive. Mm -hmm. And they want to know more. There's a call from across the United States and all of North America to investigate every aspect of Volkswagen now. Yeah. Uh, That's one of the things that when the door gets opened like that, it's open to everything. And you're right. VW Mm -hmm. was a trusted car brand, even going back to their Think Small advertisements back in the the 1960s. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess, though, that the company officials only admitted wrongdoing after the United States Environmental Protection Agency confronted them. And so it makes me wonder, kind of like what you were saying a moment ago, about the people who were working there. And I don't mean executives, but um, the workaday 
man or woman, where was the whistleblower? Well, and there's a couple, I'm going to parse your question. So there's a couple of pieces. One is um, VW had been confronted with this evidence by an independent consumer governance organization okay. in Europe. That's how this started because they were like, how come the the emissions are so much better in the United States than they are in um, VW diesel cars in Europe? Mm-hmm. And and that that doesn't pass the sniff test, no. and anybody is going to be curious about that. How how is that happening? Yeah, we know the emission standards are higher in the U.S., but it costs the company more to have two different manufacturing processes. So, and anybody who's ever been in a regulated industry knows this, especially when the regulations are different across your markets. You take the most stringent regulations and you build everything to that because then everyone's happy. And you have a single, um, you know, straight through processing and so your costs are lower. Mm -hmm. We we all know that, right? And so this (laughs) not-for-profit consumer (laughs) advocacy organization is like, but why aren't you selling these American vehicles in Europe? Right. And so they did the admission test. They found that they confronted Volkswagen. Volkswagen told them basically, go away. Don't worry your pretty little head about this. So the organization went to the EPA. The EPA, at the time of the story, was just then doing their own testing. So they, oh, and that's and that's the thing that's come out in the United States is Americans thought the EPA was doing emission stand, standards tests and found out they haven't done emissions testing for decades. Oh, the boy. EPA in the United States has been 100% reliant. So this is the other part I mentioned of your question. The U.S. So the lack of governance is there too. Um, they haven't been doing any of the testing. It's been independently validated. And then the third part is, we know this in the United States, whistleblower protections are nearly non-existent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you know, we've, if you've been in a regulated industry, you've seen that. You've oh, seen sure. people who are whistleblowers lose their jobs. Oh, yeah. And in Absolutely. some cases get blackballed from their industry. Um, Germany also does not have whistleblower protection. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense, because we do have that here, right? Well, not really. That's what I'm saying. We don't have whistleblower protections in the United States Ooh. anymore. As every state has... As states have been going to... Um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, um, work at will... Employee at oh, will states. Yeah. Um, whistleblower protections were taken away. Okay. Um, so in most of us live, the vast majority of us live in one of those states. I do. You do. Yep. Um, that's right. So I know, I know, I looked it up. I live in a state. I do not have whistleblower protections unless I'm working for the U.S. government. Okay. I'm willing to bet that you don't have whistleblower protections either. Um, and since you're in Texas, you might not even have that if you work for the for the, for the state government. Um, so probably not. <laughs> probably not. Um, and, and so the opportunities for people to be whistleblowers are are fairly non-existent. 
Well, you know, I always learn things talking to you, Ren. I, I didn't know the other car companies that were involved in this, and I was under the misapprehension about whistleblower status. So, once again, yeah. you have educated me um, <laughs> thoroughly. Well, Let's... just remember that. And the, the employee, the, so there's a couple of things. Remember, nothing has been definitively pro- proven about Audi or um, Porsche. Right. Also, right. there's been nothing proven wrongdoing as far as the non-diesel cars. Right now, this is limited to diesel Volkswagen vehicles. Right. But you're right. The Audi and Porsche are already experiencing some of that guilt by association. Yes. And they will be investigated. Germany's already told them that. Um, and, and, yeah, so I'm hoping nothing else comes out, but we just don't know, do we? No. No, we don't, and um, good luck to you and other owners. So mm-hmm. let's let's shift gears for a moment, a little car pun there, and talk about <laughs> r- writing code that was intended to break a law. And you talked about this um, a couple of minutes ago, um, the ingenuity behind that kind of thing. And if these okay. people were hackers, they'd be they'd be labeled black hat hackers. So from an agile methodology point of view, how did this happen? Well, um, so one of the things that we've talked about is the importance of your product vision and your product roadmap. And this is clear that this could only have happened and been going on as long as it has by being part of the organization's product vision and roadmap. Something like this, it does not happen accidentally in an organization. That's the other reason why people are having such a strong reaction to it. Um, And it it was so ingrained in an institution. Like, we know the CEO knew. Mm -hmm. There's strong suspicion that boards and owners knew, right? Mm-hmm. institutionalized. Um, and that is one of the things that when I'm consulting with companies and we talk about the why, make sure you clearly understand and articulating and communicating the why and everybody knows what the why is of your product vision. Right. And we talked a lot about that of building governance into that why. If you don't want to be in a situation like this, then the why needs to not be that we have to pass the emissions test. The why is that we are building the cleanest burning vehicle we can. That's well said. If you are, right? Because if if the, the why, our goal, was to have a clean burning diesel vehicle, this could not have happened. If the goal is only to pass an emissions test, with no caveats about how you pass that test. Yeah, isn't that the truth? This um, is the stuff that happens. Yeah, and um, while it's disappointing, kind of like what you uh, you mentioned to us earlier, you have to sort of admire the the technical skill. But if the people at VW. Right, and it is quite brilliant. It was quite brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So... That's the truth. Yeah, I mean, um, it's like 
being a criminal genius, but I don't want to get too far down that path because, um, <laughs> yeah, that's a dark corner. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to encourage this kind of thing. Right. Um, no, we don't. Let's use our powers for good, not evil. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. So leaving that aside, if the people who worked at VW were, were using agile methodology, do you think there's a better chance that this would not have happened? If they were being true agilists, so we talk about understanding why at all levels, there is a chance. And why we say that is because really smart people don't like doing, don't like cheating, Mm -hmm. don't like hurting people, don't like doing something that they know could, if anybody, well, would, if anybody found out hurt the company. Um. And and that's one of, if we're looking at this from just an agile structure and we talked about the manifesto and the values, you know, this would not pass the 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 litmus test of the agile manifesto, right? Because we, right. we, they chose, you know, even the first one, you know, sort of regulations over people. We never do that in Agile, right? And they chose contracts over customers. Mm-hmm. We never do that in Agile. Um, you know, we we there is a chance if you're in an Agile culture, this would might have happened, but it would have gotten weeded out. I remember one of the things I we talked about when I, early on when I first just talking about Agile. What is it? And I said the biggest difference between waterfall and agile is you can't hide in agile. There's no hiding. Um, In a truly agile organization, this would have been brought out, Um, especially since they've had a couple of different CEOs while this was happening. Um, There is a chance that it would have, um, because agile forces transparency. Transparency forces conversation. Yes. Yeah, it's... um, it's not a surprise, at least for me, to, to hear that. So if you, Ren, put on your, your Agile expert hat, would the user story look like um, write code to defeat the U.S. emission standard? Very similar, right? Because I mentioned earlier the goal was pass the emissions test. Mm-hmm. Didn't say how you were... Right, and didn't say how you were passing it, didn't yeah. say why you needed to pass it, didn't do any of those things that we usually, that are required, right, in an agile conversation, and we're putting it right in our user story. Right, right. And right. it certainly wasn't customer-centric, because if I'm a customer, I do not want to be driving a car that cheated, because I'm the one who ultimately has to pay for that. I don't want that, right? And I don't want to buy a car that, you know, later the United States government is going to say, I'm sorry, you can't drive that car. So that's a really bad user story. Because that's a horrible customer experience. I think, you know, this is the difference between short-term and long-term thinking. Short-term, it was easier to cheat. I think everybody will acknowledge that. Long-term, cheating was harder. Because they had to keep cheating and they had to keep figuring out ways to get away with it. Because technology has changed significantly since the original cheat women. 
And they've had to do a lot of updates to their cheating over the years. That's one of the other reasons why people are so flipped out. Um, And they used their knowledge of the testing process and their knowledge of driver behavior that they gained over this, you know, 10, 15, 20 years this has been going on, because that's really unclear how long it's been going on. Mm -hmm. But over this long time frame, whatever that may be, they used all this consumer behavior, marketing intelligence, all these things to build a better cheat instead of building a better engine. And let's be honest, their competitors are saying, you know, it would have been easier to just build a better engine. Mm -hmm. We get the first cheat, but investing so heavily in cheating the standard wow, you should have just built a better engine and been done with it. Yeah, I mean, no one can see me sitting here shaking my head, but that's that's exactly what I think. The EPA has said that the engines had computer software that could sense test scenarios by monitoring the speed, the engine operation, air pressure, and even the position of the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. The, the engines, according to what I read, emitted... Um, nitrogen oxide pollutants that were 40 times, four zero times above what's allowed. It, to me, again, you know, this is like something Dr. Evil would have come up with. But the question really is, will this mean more regulation for the auto industry? And has VW just effectively just ruined it for everybody? Well, the... Uh more regulation is unnecessary okay. because the regulations work. The regulation, clearly, I mean, <laughs> you live in Texas. I'm sorry, son. You know the regulations worked. I live in an urban area. I can tell. Yeah. You know, I just take a deep breath. The regulations work. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, our air in the United States is so much cleaner now than it was when we were kids. Yeah, that's right. It's no comparison. And I just think of the time, the 10 years I was in New York, everybody who lived there knows, oh my gosh, the air is so much cleaner. Uh, The same thing in LA. I remember going to LA when I was, you know, really young and going to LA recently, totally different cities because you can actually see the city. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The regulations work. That is not the problem in the United States, unfortunately. I'm willing to bet that's exactly where our legislators are going to go to. The challenge is the governance of the regulations. The EPA was not doing their own testing. The EPA, no one was doing field testing. Who cares what happens in a lab if the lab does not accurately reflect real-life situations? Right. It's useless information. It's just an exercise in futility. If we want, and this is true of any testing, by the way, Mm -hmm. it needs to reflect real-life situations. The only way to do a reasonable emissions test is a field test when the car is is running and driving on a road by a real human being. That's the only way you could do a real test of emissions. We have the same conditions with with software testing um, all the time. You know, our automated testing tools are the way they are to replicate real world situations. Yeah. 
yes. not to do something in a lab. Right? The mm-hmm. labs just, they have to be focused on recreating a real-life situation or it's just useful. It's useless testing. And that's what we didn't have in in Europe, you know, it's spotty. Mm-hmm. In the United States, the EPA was not testing at all. And then the testing that the auto manufacturers were doing, and, the, and this is going to be interesting to me, for all the auto manufacturing, how accurate are their testing? Because all of them were doing them in laboratory conditions that did not reflect and do not reflect real live driving conditions. So I'm willing to bet that none of these admissions tests, even the people who weren't cheating, but that none of them accurately reflect true conditions based on what the EPA has already communicated about that. Yeah, that's a good point that, you know, the testing has to be uh, real world. And and right, and like you described it beautifully, it's a car lockdown. <laughs> with a single direction steering position going at a the same moderated speed mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <'Cause> <laughs> with controlled air pressure. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you drove down a road in your neighborhood and you were controlling the air pressure? Uh, not once. Not once ever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's like, all right, guys, this test is useless. Let's throw it out and do something that reflects real-life driving right. conditions. Yeah, the other thing is the cost. The recall oh. and retooling of all of these cars just here in the U.S. is thought to be as much as $37,500 per vehicle. So I wondered, couldn't they just swap out the old, the defective vehicles and give everybody a new one? If they had any sense. Oh, like yeah. if they were real, I'm just going to be honest with you, it's harsh, but it's honesty sometimes is. If we're being pure capitalists about this, mm-hmm. and I've worked, you know this, we haven't talked about it on the podcast, but I've done consulting with auto manufacturers mm-hmm. in the United States and in Germany right. on their agile practices, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, and I will be honest with you, if they're selling you a vehicle for 48000 I'm just going to, I just pulled at it number out of the air. Right. I'm thinking of their Audi. That's a pretty typical Audi price tag for branding Audi. Their real cost is under 20. Oh, wow. So you look at, you think about a diesel and Volkswagen's are less expensive than Audi's typically. Right. You know, the median price tag is less. Um, you look at that $37,500. Yeah, it would be a lot cheaper, not a little bit cheaper, a lot cheaper for them to replace every single diesel vehicle with a brand new one. The challenge is they can't because they haven't solved the underlying problem. So when they were notified by the nonprofit governance organization, the consumer government uh, organization, that they failed and they were suspected of cheating on these emissions tests. Mm -hmm. They didn't take that intermediate time until the EPA got involved, which was over a year. Um, (laughs) They didn't do do any improvements to the engines during that time. So they have diesel vehicles that they literally can't put on the road. Yeah, that's... uh... So they've got a lot of problems over there. Yeah, they've got a lot of issues because they first have to fix this diesel vehicle problem. Mm -hmm. 
and which they're like they the one of the reasons that well the major reason the retooling cost is so high is because they don't know how to fix it. Um, at the same time, they're having to respond to additional scrutiny within VW, but also Audi and Porsche, mm-hmm. and they're dealing with this uh, crisis. They've got a lot on their shoulders right now. Yeah, it sounds like it. So let's put on our uh, our imagination hats and let's imagine that Wren is charged with fixing this. And fixing it includes mechanical stuff, but it also includes restoring the trust of the auto buying public. How do you do it? There's two big things that I would do if I was the CEO of Volkswagen. Okay. One, one, the most important thing here he did. He admitted to it. He mm-hmm. admitted it was wrong. He apologized. He stepped down. Right. And, and the Volkswagen organization, the entire family of companies, that said we're welcoming in the regulators and the auditors, you know, and the transparency that comes with that. But as far as fixing it, yeah, the other companies have solved this problem. Volkswagen is perfectly capable of solving this problem with the diesel engines. Fix it, fix it now. Mm-hmm. Do, do what I mentioned earlier. Once you have it fixed, you replace every single diesel car with a brand new one. Three, all your emissions tests are open to the public road test mm-hmm. for all your vehicles, Volkswagen, Audi, and Porsche. And you invite the press, and you invite the public, and you invite all the consumer organizations, and you invite all the regulators, mm-hmm. and you make it completely open and transparent. You even encourage them, like the consumer organization, to bring their own equipment. Let them drive the cars, participate in the testing process, and be completely transparent. Yeah, that sounds like pretty darn good advice, and um, hopefully, you know, they're listening um, and will take you up, because it does sound like um, restoring trust comes with, well, don't take our word for it, bring your own gear, and see for yourself. Was that Reagan used to say, trust but verify? Um, I I always lost that one. But, and it's true, and I do that a lot in my own governance practice, trust but verify. Mm -hmm. And I would do that last one now. If you want to protect the rest of um, their brand, especially Audi, Mm -hmm. Audi is their highest, uh, most profitable, they need to protect Audi. They want to stay in business. Get those Audi cars on the road and do those field tests now and get the public there and get the consumer organizations there and get the regulators there and do it now. Yeah. Don't wait. And like I said, use their, you know, have them bring their own equipment. Let them drive the cars. Heck yeah. You know, put them in the steering wheel. You know, literally put them in control. Like the guy who, you know, at the at the consumer organization who really brought all this to light. I would have him bring your own equipment. You already have it. We know you have it. Bring your own measuring equipment and put him behind the wheel. Yeah. Let us show you what Audi can do and how committed Audi and Volkswagen is to providing safe cars for our consumers. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great advice. And um, mm-hmm. not just... Uh, for those folks, but you know, you could extrapolate 
those values out to any any crisis. You know, don't take our word for it. Bring your own mm -hmm. equipment. And I guess you know, with the couple of seconds we have left, I don't know why I'm I'm always surprised and disappointed at things like this because they seem to happen an awful lot and likely the folks who are listening to the podcast feel the same way that you know trust is hard to win and very easy to lose and Ren hopefully the people who are listening will heed your words of wisdom don't forget to follow Ren on Twitter and visit her website at www.renmelberg.com to contact Ren and stay up on all of the latest from her. And remember, come back next week for another edition of The Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg.